0: your presentation
1: i like it spooky
2: hey everybody welcome to i like spooky horror podcast i'm brian
0: it's me it's me it's the c-l-i-n-t all right sorry folks i've been watching and talking about pro wrestling a lot the past few days so here in just a little bit we are going to be joined in the spooky studio by the helicopter zombie from the original 1978 dawn of the dead mr jim crutt but before we get into all of that let's get to some news
2: Ooh, I know people have been chomping at the bit for this news. Emmy-nominated Predator Movie Prey is finally getting a physical media release. So it's getting a 4K and a Blu-ray in October. Our friends at Bloody Disgusting shared this information with us. Sounds like a book through Best Buy and a lot of special features. This movie came out a year ago. So people have been saying, where's its release? Why isn't it getting a release? I watched the movie. Jack, my son, watched it with me. He enjoyed it. Seemed like it did well on Hulu. I mean, I don't know what stopped it from getting a release. Maybe some licensing rights or Hulu wanted it on their service. So people would have to come and watch it there. Maybe that's an issue. But yeah, it's got a lot of special features. Uh, Comanche Trek. It sounds like they're going to have the audio all in. The native language that the movie would be shot in or, you know, in that time setting was set in so you can watch it in English dubbed or you can watch it in the, I guess, original Comanche language, which I think would be interesting.
0: Yeah, it seems kind of a normal timeline, really, that I think, if you think about it, like typically if a show comes out, Ash vs. Evil Dead, it wasn't like the first season ended and then right away we had that on on physical media. It seems like it takes a little while. So I haven't seen the movie. I've never been a big Predator fan, but I mean, a lot of people liked it. It seemed it won a bunch of awards. I think it won, what, six or seven awards at the Fango Chainsaw uh, Award Show. The only thing I really remember about that is when it came out a year ago. I remember we were at Flashback last year and Jason, And I think it was the end of Saturday and Jason was like, all right, let's go to my room and watch Prey. And I'm just kind of like, I'm at Flashback in Chicago. I'm not going to your room to watch a movie. What are you crazy? We're going to go hang out and talk to people and party, you know, Uh, still haven't seen it. Maybe
2: I'll check it out. Yeah, I think was it Friday night? We watched Rocky Four.
0: Yeah, we went up and had dinner, and we were watching Rocky <laughs> Four. And I'm, I love the company. I'm not complaining about hanging out with you guys or whatever and um, eating food. But I was just kind of, like, what, are, what are we doing? Let's let's go downstairs, you know. So
2: I'll be picking it up. I I enjoyed it. It was one of the better Predator movies. I mean, it's no Predator Two.
0: Anything with a part. Well, they're talking about a Prey Part Two, aren't they? I think I've heard rumblings of the sequel.
2: Oh, that I'll like that one immediately. <laughs> what kind of news you got? i've got some this isn't
0: necessarily horror news so i thought i'd mix it up a little bit this is from indiewire.com netflix the remaining dvd users are about to be flush with discs the streaming giant is marking the end of its original business by sending users who opt in up to 10 dvds at once i had no idea netflix still did this i thought this was You know, long gone, a long time ago. So apparently Netflix still sends DVDs in the mail, but they are getting ready to uh, to put the kibosh on that. Let's see here. Revenue from home rentals has steadily declined ever since. Uh here in in 2022, the company's DVD service generated just one hundred and forty five point seven million dollars. Let's see. It had roughly 1.1 to 1.3 million subscribers. And it sounds like it's down from now. It's down to 8.2. So, I mean, yeah, the numbers aren't there and they're they're ending sending out physical media.
2: Did you know that they were still doing this? I think I did, because there's still a couple people that that I know that will get a random movie. And I'm just like, where would you get that at? And they're like, oh, Netflix had it. And it's weird movies like stuff that Arrow or, you know, like Shout Factory would have out that you wouldn't be able to like stream even i'm like what they had it on netflix would you say one point i was trying to read it and then
0: a bunch of ads in the article bounced bounced around what i was reading but it says revenue from home rentals has steadily declined in 2022 the company's dvd service generated just just only (laughs) 145.7 million dollars in
2: revenue I wonder what their high was. I mean, were they probably like in the billions at one point?
0: Well, yeah, because it says that that one point, or $145.7 million in revenue is was only half of 1% of their overall revenue. So, yeah, I don't blame them for putting the kibosh on it. I just was amazed to learn that this they still did this. It does say here, too... It says that <clears throat> those who opt in should wait by their mailboxes starting September 29th and the final day the company will ship. So September 29th is the final day that the company will ship out disks. But it's not for keeps. Returns are due by October 27th.
2: What the hell is the point of it? You know, like, here's the 10 movies you had on your queue, watch them, send them back. So they can do what with it?
0: You would imagine they're just going to, like, throw the DVDs in the trash? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) The whole thing's weird.
2: I came across that article and I couldn't figure out what they were going to do with them when they got them back. Like, why not just be like, you've been a loyal customer. Here's 10 random DVDs. Enjoy. And it's
0: not like when they ship those out, it comes, you know, with slipcovers or even cases or so. I mean, I don't think they would be uh, out a whole lot of money, is, you know, it's very interesting.
2: Um, It probably costs them more to have them mailed back.
0: You would think so. Well, don't those, didn't they come with like uh, paid? oh yeah cost cost the company right yeah
2: yeah you'd be better off just saying here keep these
0: it seems like netflix is i'm not trying to dog netflix because like i say i have netflix and uh, i'm not going to get rid of it i haven't watched it in forever because there's nothing worth watching on there there will be Uh, but it seems like they've been making a lot of weird decisions you know the whole thing recently where they like really put the foot down on the password sharing and you know it used to be if you were a subscriber then you could have like up to four tvs or whatever the number was no matter where they were you know um and they they put the kibosh on that everybody's trying to hold onto their cash man cuz uh, regardless how much we want to pretend these are weird economic times so it all comes down to money it always does come down to money speaking of coming down to money why are we poor
2: I ain't getting nothing. No, I'm lying. So the first thing I got, and I haven't even opened it yet. Jason's had this. Our old co-host, Jason, ordered Chopping Mall on vinyl, and he's had it since the first time I went to Michigan this year. It was in his car, and I forgot to grab it. So I haven't even opened this one. Um, I did share on our uh, YouTube and TikTok page. I got, it's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown vinyl. Yeah. Did you see it? It's shaped like a pumpkin. No, that's cool. So it's got like the records on the inside part and then the rest is like, you know, fat like a pumpkin with the stem. It was on Amazon for like 13 bucks. So I picked that up. Oh, what else do I have? I don't know. Spoiler alert. I didn't get anything, but
0: it sounds like I'm going to be buying that. That's cool.
2: Yeah, I thought it it was like $13. I was like, this is cool. Um, I ordered Tiffany, which I haven't got yet because it was a pre-order from Urban Outfitters, which is weird. I guess they do like random pop culture stuff, but they had the soundtrack for Halloween Town. Isn't Urban Outfitters a clothing uh, retail? Yeah, I was scrolling Facebook and here it comes like Halloween Town first time on vinyl. And I'm like, what? I click it and it sends me the Urban Outfitters page and I'm.
0: That's it. These are the end times. Urban Outfitters is selling Halloween records. Netflix still sells or sends out physical media. What is going on?
2: I did pick up from Arrow. Look at this. Here's my stack of movies I need to put away. Oh, well, that's. I see why you were laboring. There was like 15, 15 discs there. He's like... Ugh. It's my Vinegar Syndrome Subscriber. Vinterg Syndrome had a sale, so I picked up some movies and Terrorvisions in the middle of that, and I had them all in boxes down here, and I was like, I should probably scan these to get them in my app so I don't buy them again. Amazon had some Arrow stuff on sale. So this is Giallo Essentials, and it's What Have You Done With Our Daughters, Torso, and Strip Nude for the Killer. I think it's the second release of those. But they're usually like 100 bucks, and it was on sale for $50. I know no, that last
0: title sounds like a damn good time, though. I wish you listeners could. He is like frantically, Brian is frantically looking left and right around his room. Like, where is the? I don't know. Do I have more stuff? What the hell is going on? I bought
2: the blanket I'm sitting on. Here, I'll show it. I'll show Clint. Oh, it's got spooky Halloween skulls and pumpkins and black cats on there. I almost called you and was like, Code Orange, Code Orange at Goodwill. <laughs> they got Halloween stuff. That's funny.
0: Hey, yeah, Halloween stuff. I mean, I guess Code Orange is in full effect. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's, sorry, dude, that Halloween candies out and everything.
2: It's a blanket for outside, so it's like waterproof on one side, and then it's got this cool um, retro look. 50s 60s retro design where it's skulls and cats pumpkins and bats and it was eight dollars and it's a pretty big size i mean you could probably you know fit three or four people on it so i was like for eight bucks i'll pick it up
0: probably roll up a couple dead bodies in that thing.
2: at least one yeah i mean depending depending on their size one medium-sized male probably two small females and four children four children by themselves and then two, you know, like not all at once.
0: So Brian's getting ready to show dead kids, (laughs) also known as strange behavior here in the near future coming up sometime in October at the Orpheum in Galesburg, Illinois. So that's why he's got dead kids on the brain because of a movie, folks, not because he's a raging psychopath, although that's that's up for question also. Well, that's cool, man. I see you got some cool stuff. I got nothing this time, which is like I no, like I said, the the last uh, episode there, I I went on a spree and I felt back so I was talking forever. I got this, I got that, I got this, I got that. So this time I got nothing. Uh, as of this recording, I just got back from Horror Hound in Indianapolis, which um, isn't gonna benefit the listeners hearing this, but as of this recording, there's still one more day um, going on down there, but I shot back early to do this interview and uh, record this podcast. I spent some money going down there, you know, but I didn't buy anything. Great vendors, saw a lot of cool friends, hung out with the Valentine Bluff boys, uh, helping them push the movie. Chuck Miner was Chuck Miner. Chuck Ryan was in the Miner costume. Uh I got up in my heart sweater, Valentine Bluffs garb and was telling everybody, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens to Lloyd Kaufman. And I am now the new mayor of Valentine Bluffs. People got to laugh out of that. But uh yeah, I just, I spent some money going down there, but haven't bought anything you know, collectible wise or whatever. A lot of, it was hard because they had mask fest going on there too. And there were a lot of talented artists, cool masks, cool creations. Uh, Caleb Creates, who Brian, you've seen Caleb before at Nightmares and uh, Legacy. Ooh, I said Nightmares again. I said, I wouldn't say it for a while. He was down there with his amazing dioramas and stuff like that. Just a lot of really cool stuff, but I restrained myself.
2: Well, I feel like one of my Reasons I can buy so much and have something every episode is the blanket was eight dollars. The record I paid for like two years ago, the Peanuts record was like 13 bucks. All the movies are like 20 bucks. You got you when you get something, you go for like high end, really collectible stuff that's hard to find. I feel like so. You're dropping a nice chunk of change where I'm spending eight dollars on a blanket and. 10 to 15 bucks, 20 bucks on a movie.
0: Right. Yeah. The physical media, if I collected physical media, it'd be a different story. You know, yeah. um, The physical media is definitely, even the expensive physical media is more reasonably priced than buying a $100 prop replica gun, you know, from Spirit Halloween or whatever. I tell you what, Indy was kind of crazy because they had a Colts game going on the, the Saturday. So I had to park like seven blocks away and then they shuttled me to the convention center slash hotel. And then um, apparently because of the Colts game going on there was such an influx of people downtown, they weren't offering shuttles back. There was nothing I could do. So I had to walk like a mile and a half through seas of traffic and people just to get to my truck to sit there for an hour to get out. Jason sent me a message and he said, Hey, Tanya and I want a slaughtered lambs sign for their bar area or their uh, I think it maybe their guest house. I can't remember where they wanted it. And I said, "Dude, I was like, I'd get it for you, but I'm not trying to walk seven blocks with all my luggage and extra stuff, you know." But it would have been cool to get because um, Griffin Dune. Good lord, I need to wake up. The other actor, his name is eluding me right now. Were there? It would have been cool to have them sign. Anyway, what made me think about that was you're talking about high dollar. I sent uh, Jason a picture and I said, "Here it is, like 150 bucks for this for this sign." And he was like, "No," he was like, "Maybe later."
2: Yeah, he had told me if it was around a hundred, then they were going to be interested. I was like, and they want to keep it outside. I was like, that's kind of expensive to keep outside. You know, you maybe want to like seal it up really well.
0: I would, because if I would have, if I, I almost got it for myself and thought about having an autographed, and then I was like, no, again,
2: I just spent a bunch of
0: money, so I'm not going to. I did find one for 125 but I didn't even because by then I was 100% sure I wasn't heck, getting a shuttle so I said screw it you know all I know is is you didn't spend a lot of money this time I didn't spend any money at all we don't even need to take it to a sponsor let's just go to the interview
2: we want to spend money next time though
0: Just hersen Around and Dead Sled Brand are coming together yet again and inviting you to the 22nd annual celebration hers Fest Saturday September 16th at the Fowlerville Fairgrounds all ages are welcome to the festive that kick off at 10 a.m. at 8800 West Grand River Ave in Fowlerville, Michigan. Just two dollars gets you in the gate. Kids 16 and younger, as well as participating hearse drivers and passengers, are free. A field of hearses of all years and styles will be on hand, as well as vendors, food trucks, and more. For more info, visit justhearseandaround.com or hearsefest.com. <laughs> So now that we've heard from our sponsor, we are joined in the spooky studio by actor, producer, zombie legend, and gardener extraordinaire, Mr. Jim Crutt.
1: must have seen the green thumb. How do you do that on the radio? Wow. Green Princess.
0: <laughs> if anybody doesn't know, you can uh, go over to Jim's Facebook page and just look at pictures of things that him and his wife produce from their garden. And just looking at the pictures alone is inspiration enough to start your own your own backyard garden. It should be anyway.
1: You know, it was interesting. Two years ago, did uh, Living Dead Weekend at the Monroeville Mall in Pittsburgh, where Dawn of the Dead was filmed. And it's just completely filled with guests from George Romero movies and everybody's really hyped up and uh, the first three people I saw said hey Jim how's the garden doing (laughs) (laughs) true horror true horror fans kind of nice to have that extra I'd say a little bit of a dimension and connection with people
0: yeah definitely uh layers in fact uh we get some feedback on this show um humbly that uh, we take it humbly that you know we add like a personal connection because yeah like you say dimensional you want it you want layers of things to be able to connect with so for people who don't know which I can only assume is, is a minority. Jim is perhaps best known for his role as the helicopter zombie in the 1978 George Romero classic, Dawn of the Dead. So Brian here and former co-host Jason, uh, they covered Dawn of the Dead before I came to be on the show. Uh, and it was shortly before we met you, Jim, at Monroeville Mall at Living Dead Weekend. During that episode, they were trying to figure out how scalping you with the helicopter blades was accomplished. They they, they thought maybe you the, the blades were really going and they measured everything correctly
1: to tell you the truth i was so caught up in the moment of the filming that i thought the blades had been going around even though i knew it was an effect special effect to take off the top piece
0: oh there it is right there
1: <laughs> but i'm showing here is just a little brain example uh a brain cap I guess you'd call that uh, someone had given me for some reason I guess they must have figured that uh, I needed more something to uh, put back in after the helicopter blade went but uh, Tom Savini who was in charge of the makeup and special effects for Dawn of the Dead assured me that the blades themselves were not rotating at the time but that that was an effect that was cut in afterward in post-production having been in Vietnam Tom Savini was in Vietnam we were both around a lot of helicopters. And I stand six feet, four inches, and I still do today because it did not take actually the top of my head off, fortunately, and I'm able here to talk to you about that. Uh, But even in Vietnam, I was aware that you do not necessarily stand up straight when you walk to a helicopter. Those helicopter blades can be heavy and they can sag down. So even though they might look like they're up there, they could be a little closer to the ground. That aside, uh, I had to trust Tom and his knowledge of things to do the right effect and that it would not just be a one take and there's the rest of Jim Crump laying over the ground. Oh man, that was a mess. But what a great shot. No, so we didn't have to do that, although we did have a second change of outfits in case we had to repeat or do another take. But we were able to manage everything in one take. Uh, The helicopter was on the pad. It was actually there. I was within blade length of it. The boxes that I climbed up on, of course, raised my proximity to where those blades would have been. And I think part Part of the fun of the scene is that fans who are watching the movie can tell for themselves what's going to happen. Anticipation. Oh, if he goes up there, he's going to get closer to those blades. So I think it's, it's part of that audience involvement aspect, too, where people can make their own conclusions and take, hey, I knew that was coming. I'm pretty doggone smart. Yep, I kind of figured it out without myself. (laughs) I I think that helps in terms of the buy-in, that there's a lead-up to it. I think George Romero's Zombies, dead as we might call them, he gave not just short shrift to the zombies, but he let them be their own characters. Part of the, the magic and mystery of that is that once asked why zombie movies were so scary, he said, well, because they are your neighbors. And with his filming and his techniques and his choices of zombies and scenarios, you had a chance to identify with those zombies. You could say, oh, that looks like Joe down at the garage, or that looks like somebody from the ball team, or oh, I, I remember that nurse from uh, the hospital. they are people and characters you can identify with, and they weren't so bizarrely done up in special effects or makeups. Some of them might have had slashes or bullet wounds or whatever, but they were still very recognizable as your neighbors. I've always been a fan of the you know the big monster films. Like give me uh, King Kong, I'll I'll take any iteration of Godzilla, Godzilla. Of course, all the classics, Uh, you know, if you want to sit me down to dinner with Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Invisible Man, I'll take them all, especially with the Creature from the Black Lagoon. I want to see how he handles a knife and fork. Those are the folks and characters that, that I loved and grew up with. When you think about what made them terrifying in many ways, they were individually, either as Godzilla or, let's say, Frankenstein, it's Monster, or or Dracula, they were individually a threat. And how were they counteracted? the townspeople got together and they grabbed their pitchforks and lit torches and they all marched together on the castle. So you had the support of all your neighbors when you were battling these unholy menaces. And if it's Godzilla, gee, you've got the all the military and these little tanks, bing, 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 pew, pew, you know, with the bullets bouncing off. But the idea was people were united against the threat. Okay, so George Amaro comes along and suddenly it is your neighbors. They are the threat. All the These people you counted on and depended upon to save you and join together in in common defense, all of a sudden, they are the threat. They are the menace. Where do you go? Well, as we know from Dawn of the Dead, some folks went to the mall, the Monroeville Mall. They did actually very well there. I think what George unlocked was uh, a new type of terror. And that was something outside of ourselves that got into ourselves that we could also become part of that terror. And maybe we didn't want to be that. People didn't want to necessarily, hey, I want to join the undead. No, because the undead want to tear you apart before you get to be one of them. Not a good initiation party, not at all.
0: Well, you're talking about uh, your love for Godzilla and Kong and all that. that is right up Brian's alley. I think he, uh, a little rainbow (laughs) appeared in his heart inside when you brought that up. (laughs) Uh, You also referenced the universal monsters. And I actually always kind of thought that, that your zombie character in that film to a degree had a layer of Frankenstein to it. Was that, were you conscious of that or did it just, am I interpreting it differently?
1: No, uh, I've had people mention that that has kind of a Frankenstein look. And I have to attribute part of that to the weather. And by that, I mean, when we did the makeup sessions in Tom Savini's studio, everything looked pretty straightforward and neat. But when we got to the Monroeville Airport, and it had been raining, there was a lot of humidity, and the hair and appliances sort of fluffed up, you know, stood up a little taller perhaps than it was intended, actually. So, as a result, the look did come across somewhat like Frankenstein. Now, as far as the zombie character I portrayed, oh, I studied years to develop that look. Basically... i had no script to go from, Tommy said, Tom said, hey, I'd like you to do this film. And basically, you know, you walk up under the helicopter blade, and it's going to take the top of your head up. I didn't have a lot of conversations with Tom between the time we went to his studio and did the headcasts a couple of times so that he could build up the appliances on the bus that he made from the headcasts. On set at the Monroeville Airport, little Harold Brown Air Memorial Field, which is no longer there now.
0: Right. Sadly gone.
1: That's a sad chapter. But I was inside while Tom was outside. I was inside the little administration building. And I believe it was Janie Jeffries, the blonde zombie, who was also helping out with makeup. And I believe she might have helped, you know, finalize the touch-ups on my makeup and uh, the appliances on the top. So, I really had very little chance to talk with Tom in the intervening times between when he said, hey, Jim, I've got this great role for you in a George Romero film. And hey, it's time to go out onto the target mac. So, I'm walking out with Tom, not really... Really having a clue as to what's going to take place when and where. And I said, uh, Tom, so I'm a zombie-like character in this film. Do these zombies talk? He said, um... No, they they don't talk, and I I didn't see any of the other zombies. I had you know no preconceived notions of what these characters were like. That was me just going out there doing my zombie thing. I said, well, do they make noises or grunt or howl or anything? Yeah, I didn't want to be too conspicuously different from any what other zombie characters might be. Said, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Give me a chance to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to have fun with it. You know, in those few minutes of walking over to where the first setup was, across the field from the helicopter, there was a, a single-engine plane there out on the edge of the runway, and George was directing that part of it and had me come out from under the wing. You know, I, I just thought about the characters, okay, they're dead, they're moved somewhat stiffly, and without a lot of preconceived ideas of what a zombie should be, That I didn't The zombie, I thought, would be that character. In terms of George directing, people have asked what was it like to work with George. Well, George is a great guy. He did wonderful films. And I was absolutely delighted to be part of one of them. But as far as some of the special effects that he had Tom develop... He pretty much returned those sections of the filming over to Tom because Tom knew the angles, the the, uh, the timing, particularly what was supposed to happen and when. So George didn't really have to worry a lot about those things. He just had to make sure that overall it fit into the sequences, that uh, the effects looked good, and if you had to do them over, you do them over. But it was pretty much up to Tom to develop and then to direct those segments. So Tom, once George did the segments under the wing, and, you know, is walking back across the field, in my character, to the helicopter, where for those who don't know, I got the top of my head taken off by the helicopter blade in this film, Dawn of the Dead, as you nicely introduced, George Romero, 1978. So as I was walking across, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be cool. doom 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 <laughs> So I said, this is great. I'm getting some extra screen time. Yay. I'm walking across the field and some cut-ins on that. And then finally, we get to where the boxes are. And they said, okay, you're going to climb up on the boxes. When we get to the top of the boxes, you'll get the cue and you'll be menacing up until that point. And then this appliance piece on top of the head is going to get yanked off by somebody off camera. Now, I'm walking up on top of these boxes, which are stacked like too high. Tom and another assistant are behind the boxes and there are blood tubes running from the appliances that were in, embedded in top of my head onto these pieces that Tom had you know, built in, Uh, not counting the one that was going to fly off. And those blood tubes then went down my shirt. Uh, That's why part of the reason I was wearing a turtleneck, so you could shoot it from an angle and not see those blood tubes. Had enough hair to cover the rest. Then down my trouser legs, down to the bottom of the boxes, where Tom and an assistant were. The other end of these blood tubes were uh, connected to hand pumps. Tom described them as fire extinguisher-type pumps. But they were little hand pumps that when you would push on them, would normally push the air out, but they would be filled with the artificial blood. So on cue, somebody off camera runs and takes off the top of the head, in the way... Tom built it. It came off in chunks, in sections. There's a beautiful stream of chunks coming off. And at the same time, Tom and the other guy behind the boxes start their pumping. So I've got two streams of blood coming down off the top of my forehead, you know, a look of surprise. And then I collapse on top of the boxes. They kept shooting and uh, you just make the most of the shots. And then as you're lying there in this pool of blood and somebody's coming along to take your picture, What you look like in this pool of blood, having just collapsed and look over and George is kind of smiling and say, that's great. You know, that's great. And I'm thinking, "Okay, I guess we have to do it again. He said, no, we don't have to. That's good one take that's all we needed
0: that was a one take shot okay
1: and i'm thinking this is wonderful yeah i just was so pumped because we'd done the head castings we did you know the the waiting and the waiting and the waiting to get on to set then to do the scenes and you're just so pumped up you don't want the moment to end it's it's magic it's doggone magic you don't want the magic to stop you want it to keep on going and he said okay now we're moving on to the next shot Okay. You can get cleaned up if you want to. And if you want, there's some food over on the craft table. Man, I just wanted to play some more. (laughs) It was so much fun.
0: It really was. I tell you, the the beauty of everything you're describing is, like, we recently covered um, Planet Terror, which I don't know if you'd seen that. It was not Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez zombie film. And there's a scene in that where they get in a helicopter and angle down and the blades take out a whole mass of zombies. It's a great scene. But when you see it, you know that is computer, that's CGI. Your scene back in 78 with the practical effects, to this day, people are like, I wonder how they did that. And you take, you know, some film buffs or or enthusiasts like ourselves, and we're even sitting around going, I wonder how they did that. So, yeah, the, the difference between practical and CGI is amazing.
1: Yeah, I think with something like Planet Terror, you kind of buy into it. Okay, yeah, this is all computer generated and you let it go. But as you say. Gore's Own Magazine, about what 15 years ago now, did an article uh, asking how this scene was done. It was an interview with Tom Savini, and he talked about how we'd met in college, and we worked in theater, and we got back together in Pittsburgh after our time in the military, and. He had asked me to do the scene and then, you know, specifically how it was done. But he had some great illustrations to go with that Gore Zone magazine article. I'm thinking, this is like 30 years later and people were still asking how did that scene Happen? How was it made? How how did they do that? You know, was the blade turning? And I tell people, I think a lot of it is anticipation. When you're watching a movie, you get some little hints or clues because it, it helps your buy-in. You become a participant. You know what's going to happen, and when it happens, you get this feeling of satisfaction that you were right. Well, sometimes you might be wrong, and that's that's just as satisfying because uh, you're still buying into it for the ride. There's a thing. uh, used to be like in German theater in the 30s. It was like a, a V effect where in a live play people on stage would be doing these various actions and scenarios and dramas and then somebody in the play would just stop and walk up Look at the audience and maybe start talking to them. You know what's going on in this show, don't you? Yeah, you know? No. And, and so it's like a complete break of this fourth wall. Suddenly, you, you, you kind of sit back in your seat because, you know, the situation, all of the givens have changed. And then he says, all right, now we're going to continue the drama. And the speaker goes back into the play and boom picks it up, and they resume, and you're still back in your seat. But once again, you start to creep forward. So it's that kind of pulsing effect of being drawn in, being set back on your seat. Whoa! And then getting, getting drawn back in again. So literally, it's physical as well as a mental and an emotional connection to the film. See, I told you I talked a
0: lot. Oh, that's great. I love the insight.
2: You had said that when you were doing it, you wanted to do more. You You had no idea that, I mean, it's 45 years later now that this would become one of the most iconic deaths in all of horror cinema. People would be coming to see you at the Monroeville Mall. Talking about this scene and trying to figure it out. You can watch the movie and then you can find out how it happens and you can go back and watch it again and be like, oh, now I see it. Now I see this and now I see this. But you had said you have this love for older movies older cinema where it was the world against a monster and I think that's one thing that we've gotten away from now is it's all individual it's almost every film is it's this one person fighting Jason or it's this small group fighting whatever they're fighting and that's one thing that George did well is he kept it to where it was humanity against a monster but he also pulled in where it was humanity against itself yes that's when thing he did so well, you know, it was almost like we're our worst enemy. That's
1: an excellent, excellent point. And just to jump over to uh, Greg Nicotero, you know, one of the executive producers for The Walking Dead, who had worked with Tom Savini, who was familiar with George Romero. And I think some of that same... Interpersonal relationship and interpersonal conflict among the survivors is what drove The Walking Dead to become such a success because it was, at the bottom, it's a it's a human interpersonal relationship story. Conflicts and uh, cooperation, all of these other elements. You know, you can't just fight zombies all day. <laughs> Or are you worth saving? Tell us a little bit more about you, you know, as a character. So you're exactly right. You hit that.
2: That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about Dawn of the Dead was you never feel like through the movie that that group has lost its humanity, that they're just happy to kill and happy to get through the day. They still have some humanity left in them.
0: Well, and that's something that I actually think led to Jim's scene, something that George did in that scene that I think helped you, Jim, become a feature zombie and a feature kill in that movie was it wasn't like the blades took your head off and then they just went to the next scene you see scott's roger character sit there and look at the blades and ponder everything that just happened for a minute and i really think that uh, also shined a spotlight on yourself your character and that scene in that movie because whether it's long-term hardcore fans who've seen the movie a gajillion times or a first time watch like that scene sticks out. It was a special, special sequence, you know, but what's odd about that is when I looked through your um, internet movie database profile, Jim, It's uh, the role was uncredited, which makes sense because there was a lot of zombies in that film, which I'm sure all went uncredited. But what I think is special about that is even though so many of the zombies and the one kills in that movie are uncredited, Living Dead Week in Monroeville Mall, it is such a special place. And the fact that fans from all over the world clamor to that place and you guys are front and center. A majority of the zombies from Dawn of the Dead people go there to meet you to get your autograph. They don't need you to be credited in the film. They know who you are and why.
1: In some ways, and I have sometimes wondered how that worked out. Possibly the only explanation I had in my mind was that maybe Tom paid me personally for my time on the makeup in the studio and on set and that never showed up in the, uh, you know, the payroll for the film or something. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating there. I've done shows in Germany in the uk in fact i have one coming up in november weekend of the dead and the focus is all george romero guests uh one of them is going to be scott reininger and they're going to do a special photo op with just scott and me (laughs) scott's going to have his swat uh outfit on and uh i don't know maybe i'll be chewing on uh, on somebody during a photo op (laughs) (laughs) it's just so much i volunteered (laughs) i'll save some appetite yeah But uh, the Living Dead Weekend, you know, speaking of that, I know we're kind of focused on Dawn of the Dead, but the whole George Romero universe, the fact that a a convention, I mean, a good-sized convention for three days can be devoted just to the work of one director. The three particular films, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead, each have their own I wouldn't say rabid, but fantastic audiences, and the the fan base for each of them is just wonderful. And then once you discover one, you wanna you wanna watch the others, and you say, well, wait a minute, was there anything else he did? Well, there's this one called Amusement Park, and of course there's there's Monkey Shines, and uh, so as you get into one film, you think, man, yeah, I really like that. I wonder what else he did, and then you look at these other films and some different wrinkles to them. The thing that still stands out for me with Dawn of the Dead George Romero, in particular, is that he conceived all of these. And if anybody in the audience has ever worked on a film, you know the difficulties of doing it. 50 people say, I'm going to make a film, and one eventually does. Because they've had the fortitude and the the, the ability to get the financing, the script, the cinematographers, the sound folks, the lighting folks, and the actors, and the, the casting, and the locations. So many elements go into it that people don't really appreciate. To go to see a movie and bam, that was kind of... Of fun and sort of take a lot of that for granted. But the fact that George was able to do that for one film after another, each with a unique theme, each with a unique audience in some ways. And, but what he did, in some cases, you have some of the same actors in different films that he did, and he brought them together. And he brought together the audiences. And when you ask about the success, say, of Dawn of the Dead, and you're right, I've seen posters in languages from all over the world, uh, DVDs and laser discs and everything else, virtually any language you can imagine. What George did was bring people together. And even though George is no longer with us, rest his soul, he brought us together in something that is fun, that we enjoy. Sure, it's zombies and terror and killing and murder, all the kind of wild and bloody stuff that people say, oh, I'd never see something like that. Give it a shot. And when you see those stories of the humanity and how they interact and face a common threat and you realize, hey, you like that one too? Let's go out for coffee. Let's talk about it. So, you, you have this growing base of people who continue to appreciate these films. And it's not because A, George Romero was a great director, B, each one was a great film, you know, had great publicity or something. It all comes down to the fans. F A N S. The fans. Without the fans, none of that means anything. People have put literally almost a billion dollars into films. And they, yeah, that's kind of nice. It's a flop. <laughs> so what's the connection between the Romero films and the people who watch them? And that's something I, in my mind, I, I, try, I try to continue to explore because I find that's just a fascinating thing that no matter what you do, how do you get those fans to appreciate what you're doing? You have to give them something that, A, that they like and B, maybe it takes them someplace they've never been before.
0: Well, and you know, here in the near future, I'm sure you've heard, but uh, Romero did a treatment um, for Twilight of the Dead, which is potentially, uh, we're going to see that in the near future. It's uh, you know, potentially going to be in production here, so that'll be interesting to see what he contributes. You brought up cons. Obviously, I think Living Dead Weekend at Monroeville Mall is probably one of a mainstay for you. You and I were both at Creature Feature Weekend in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, you just mentioned a show in November. Is that the Evans City show?
1: No, that's in Manchester in the UK. Because uh, about seven years ago, I guess it's going on eight years ago, they wanted... A, there were a lot of fans of uh, the Romero films, but they can't all afford to come over to the US and maybe meet one or two people here or there. But if some of us could go to the UK as a small group, five, 10, whatever... And they could come to one location, spend some quality time. It's a formula that has worked and it's all been Romero based. It's been going on for like eight years. I think they brought over maybe 40 some different guests from Romero films. And again, it's Romero focused. It's unique. And it's called Weekend of the Dead. And it's always been done in Manchester in uh, a couple different locations there. But the very first show, I was talking with Marcus Lewis, who's the promoter for that, and he said, you know, we have a lot of fans here who really love the movies, and we're trying to maybe start a a, a convention. And David Crawford's doing a show in Germany, and David Crawford was at the very beginning of Dawn of the Dead. He said, we could probably get him over here for like $100 or so, you know, to fly over from Germany. It's not that far away you know, what what kind of ideas might you have for us to help try to put together a convention? The more they talked about how enthusiastic these fans were, I said, hey, Marcus, I got a question for you. How far are you from Stonehenge? (laughs) He said, oh, about 30 miles, 40 minutes, something like that. I said, you take me to Stonehenge, I'll come over. (laughs) I, I arrived in London. He and David Crawford and I, we went we saw stonehenge and he took us down through london and saw the big wheel and big ben and all this great stuff you know i just loved it and then we drove up to manchester and we had this nightclub and we had like five hours in it or something before the band started and they could only get 75 people in because that was the capacity so i i got it i bought my ticket i flew over and you know a uh, uh, Literally an afternoon show with 75 people. These fans were so enthusiastic. I just absolutely loved each and every one of them who showed up. They bought photos and, you know, they did these events and such. And, you know, I made my plane ticket. And uh, I, w- I was happy. I'd gotten to see Stonehenge, too. <laughs> Shortly a-, a few minutes after the show closed, one of the one of the women... Claire said, Jim, I, I have a favor to ask of you and I said, Well what's that? She said, I had a tattoo of you done on my on my leg and I was wondering if you would sign that for me. I said, Oh my God, Claire, of course I'll do that. So I got my Sharpie out and
0: He says, How high up is it? <laughs> no, this is on
1: the lower calf. Lower calf. So I, I uh did this uh autograph and the next day I was still in town and she said, I went back to the tattoo parlor and they did the your autograph, they tattooed that on too. They inked it up. I thought, Man, that's that's incredible. What what a fantastic event and a fan and dedication. So I said, well, you know, Marcus, I hope you made enough to do the, another show. He said, oh, we have. And I said, well, maybe you can bring over some you know some new guests. And he said, and you're coming over too. And I said, well, I was just here. He said, no, one of the fans is getting your airplane ticket in your hotel. I said, what? I mean, I never had anything like that happen to me. And he said, he said, yeah, they just appreciated your coming over. And they figure if the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the uh, folks who come over or anything like you, then, you know, they want to meet them. <laughs> and I said, well, that's fantastic. And I was blown away. Well, I did go back the next year, and Claire was there, and she said, Jim, I didn't like the tattoo that I had done before because I don't think it really represented you. I wanted something of higher quality, so I got another one done on the other leg. Could you sign that one for me? I said, Claire, anything for you. I'd do that, sure. But she made these little helicopter zombie knit dolls for me. And we took a picture together because I I, it was just so cute. posted that on Facebook, and 20 or 30 people said, I want one of those. I said, Claire, could you make some more? I've got a show coming up in in Monroeville. I think fans would be interested. And she said, well, sure. She made up uh, maybe 25 or 30. They were mostly all pre-sold by the time of the next show. So she made up some more for me. She made up some for a couple other folks. She quit her job and started her own business, just doing these knit figures of different horror characters. I mean, in terms of the people's lives that you see and how, how it's affected them, why did all that happen? George Romero brought us all together. I mean, I take no credit for it. I'm just saying, George Romero brought us all together. I am incredibly grateful. I am literally eternally grateful for George Romero and the work that he's done. And of course, I have to give a lot of credit to Tom Savini, who did the casting on me. George did not cast me. Tom simply asked if I wanted to do the role. As I mentioned, Tom and I had gone to college together. We had done some theater together and we would had some you know, other shared experiences. So I trusted Tom when he said, we're going to cut the top of your head off with of the helicopter. I thought, oh, well, OK, <laughs> sure, let's do that.
0: It's utterly amazing that relatively a small role in this film has led to so much and and touched so many people's lives. But I want to get into, you you mentioned theater with Tom. I wanted to get into a little bit of what led you to this movie because you've you've referenced it before and I've heard some backstory before about your experience in theater. Had you done a movie prior to this or had you been looking to transfer from theater to film or did it just all kind of come about or...
1: Well, when I was living in Pittsburgh, I was there about seven years, and uh, I was working in theater for seven years, in live theater. Two different theater companies. One was the uh, Pittsburgh Laboratory Theater, which was an experimental theater, very physical. And then we branched off and did another theater company, a traveling repertory company called the Ironclad Agreement. In fact, we even did, we performed... Traveling from like North Carolina to Boston to Chicago, all sorts of venues, college campuses, street fairs. We did the, the Fringe Festival in Scotland. The since 1976, you know, the anniversary year of the founding of the United States, they had a big party in downtown Pittsburgh at the point where the two rivers, the Allegheny and Monongahela, come together and form the Ohio River. And at that triangle, It's a a large park, so I got to play Uncle Sam. In that, as, as part of uh, my relationship with the folks from the theater companies, we did a play about Andrew Carnegie, you know, the founding of the steel companies and the labor unions. I was absolutely 100% embroiled in live theater. So when Tom asked, would you like to do this role in a George Romero movie? And at first, I didn't recall who George Romero was. Now, you have to realize this was like 10 years after Night of the Living Dead. I knew Night of the Living Dead, but I thought more of the movie than I did think of the person, because because there weren't that many films that George had done that stood out like Night of the Living Dead.
0: Well, back then, I think he was still uh, industrial films and commercials and stuff mainly, yeah.
1: And something else that people don't understand or don't quite realize from a historical perspective, if you got into let's say, a type of film or a type of genre that was looked down upon or frowned upon, you might not get what might be called straight work or even commercials or any other kind of film work. You might just be like typecast. Yeah, goes to that sort of junk stuff. You know, we don't want that. So the horror, people. some people really loved it and some people had their hesitations about it, to put it politely. So to become involved with a project like that, in a sense, you put your future on the line at the time. But I thought, so what? I'm going to do what I want to do. Tom's a good friend. He asked me to do it. I think it'd be great fun to do it. It was one of the best decisions I ever made.
0: It's funny you mention that because nowadays, well, even 20, 30 years ago, I mean, so many uh, Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, I mean, just to name a couple people get their starts, their start in horror. That's where you go to start anymore. Your theater experience led you to that experience, which got you into Dawn of the Dead, which has turned in all this amazing stuff stuff but on your uh, again on your internet movie database profile there's a lengthy gap after dawn of the dead in 78 and then the next thing that pops up is in 2006 with the the guatemalan handshake yes two questions one is is that hiatus where you honed your green thumb and your gardening skills and two can you tell us a little bit about guatemalan handshake and what brought you back to to film after all those Mm -hmm. years
1: Yes. It's uh, not too complicated of a story. In 1979, I got married. Dawn of the Dead was, my shooting was done in 77, in 78, you know, the release in Europe, in 79, the release in the U.S. of Dawn. I got married. And uh, by 1980, our first daughter was born. Even then, I was a budding gardener and I'd put little tomato plants out in this little strip of space we had near the apartment. But one morning I woke up. And I looked out and all over the tomatoes, there were little metal flakes that had simply precipitated out of the air. Now, Pittsburgh is based around the three rivers and the steel mills were situated alongside the rivers. So were the roadways. So you could drive along the roadways at night and your headlights, it would look like snow sometimes. The reflection at night of the metal flakes in the air. Now, you might think, gee, why didn't somebody do something about that? Well, I did. I left town. I did not want to raise my family and our daughter in that kind of a polluted situation. So I moved uh, you know, 150 miles uh, eastward back to my old hometown in Huntington County, Pennsylvania. I didn't have a job. I just wanted to get away. I knew the air was clean. And to me, that was the starting point. But it was also another kind of struggle. You know, economically, um, a friend had a, an audiovisual business. i had been working in theater and I could basically I was talking to companies and corporations about communications. My degree from Point Park University in Pittsburgh was journalism and communications and speech. I knew how to do those things. The person also owned a newspaper. I... Uh, after, I think, two years. He said, I just fired my editor. How would you like to be editor of the newspaper? I'd been writing for it. I said, I guess I could do that, but I can't do two jobs. He said, no, I'll pay you enough to this one. You don't have to do the other one. I said, okay. So I didn't have to do as much traveling and journalism, writing, photography, developing photos in the darkroom, going out covering football games. Somebody bring you a picture of the the giant muskie they just caught in the Juniata River or I grew this huge pepper. You should take a picture of that and put it in your paper. You get to know a lot about people. And then sometimes there's local politics and school boards. It was a really good introduction to life. And from there... I was offered a position in Harrisburg, the state capital, working with the state rural electric associations. The Pennsylvania Rural Electric Association uh, had a statewide magazine called Pen Lines. And for the next seven years, I was editor of that magazine, which meant a lot of travel, a lot of research, photography, again, layout, design, uh, meeting with other editors, interviews. It was a very, very full and all time-consuming existence. Things settled down a bit. After seven years, instead of, it took about to 1990. And then I was offered a position in Gettysburg with one of those member cooperatives, Adams Electric Cooperative. And I realized, hey, I had some time. I wasn't working quite as much. I was able to do more freely, develop communications programs. I was able to do radio spots, video spots. You know, record them, learn learn a bit about sound and lighting. Working closely with the video studio in Gettysburg, and I would sit and help when we would audit uh, videos. So I, I learned a little. bit more about the other side of filmmaking in a sense that way too. But with some of this time on my hand, I saw a notice for an audition for this film called Guatemalan Handshake. And I thought, that's perplexing. I might have enough time if it's a short enough role. So I drove up to Harrisburg after work and they were just closing out the auditions. And they said, you know, just fill this out. They're, they're finishing up with someone in the other room. And I started filling out this form and I was still filling it out. And they said, uh, you can come in now. So I went in and there's a director and I guess the producer. And they looked and said, oh, he might fit you know, visually, that role. Let's let's just talk a little bit. So we talked a little bit, and they said, we think you would do a great job as Kenneth, the power plant technician in this film. And I thought, hey, I've been working in the electricity business for about 30 years now. I think I can handle that role. Put me to it. So they said, all right, well, we'll get back to you. That evening, I got a call from the director who said, why the hell didn't you tell me you were in Dawn of the Dead? <laughs> He said, I didn't know that. I said, what was on the paper? He said, well, we didn't read that. We just started talking to you. We cast you, you know, and... He said, that's fantastic. Well, that's even better now. So that was the first film that I did. And I realized that with my my job in in Gettysburg, Adams County, I could work out some time frames where I could do some film. But they had to be within a regional driving distance, within a certain time frame. I didn't want to take two weeks of vacation and film. I had other things I want to do. But I could work out on evenings, weekends, whenever I could, take some time off. So I think since uh, 2000, 2006 have done I don't know maybe another 30 films or something like that and a couple this summer.
0: Well, I was going to say you've actually since then you've remained very active in entertainment uh, with a slew of acting credits, uh, some self credits and like documentaries and such, but also some producer credits. And I was going to ask if you could tell us the differences between being in front of and behind the camera. You you kind of just touched on some of it. You know, getting interested in the behind the scenes stuff.
1: You know what I like to do is buy into people's passion. The reason I went to Living Dead week, or Weekend of the Dead in the UK, I could feel and sense and taste that passion that people had a love for what they were doing and they were going to put everything they had into it. Somebody might cast me and say, hey, I've got this role for you. It's not real big, but um, we'd like to have you do this, this role. And I'd say, okay. And I would get on set and I'd see... What, maybe the script was kind of a fun thing. Maybe it was maybe a little flaky. Who knows? We're talking about independent films here. But the, the relationships with the director, with the other people on the cast, with the other people in the crew. And then you might do another film and you say, hey, got some of the same people. We're all kind of working in the same direction. We're trying to make some movies here. And you see that they're struggling. And you say, hey, Maybe uh, I can bring in pizza or something for the next uh, day of shooting. Give yourself a little break. And you find out that, you know, that's appreciated. You can help people. And then you realize, well, they got to rent a space. They've got to rent a van or they've got to rent equipment or licensing or whatever. And so in terms of a producer, you do those kinds of things. Which helped to facilitate the movie being made. That doesn't mean you get a voice and say, hey, uh, I don't like that character. Put my put my son or daughter in, you know, or my friend from across the street. Not that kind of stuff. But because they've got the passion for doing it, and you have a passion, you have a role, and hey, I want to help you get this thing made. And I, I just, I want to see those passions come together and what you're really going to do what it's really going to look like after you put it all together i guess but that's the best way i can put it
0: it almost sounds to a degree that you prefer the producer or the behind the scenes as opposed to being in front of the camera what about uh what about directing do you have any aspirations to direct someday
1: uh in gettysburg i worked in theater we formed a uh, theater company called Gettysburg Stage. I got to play my favorite role, Dracula, a couple times. And then I got to direct it on um, another occasion or two and change, change the concept. Uh, I directed Vincent, the story of Vincent Van Gogh. I loved directing but i had enough of a knowledge of the script and the characters we were working with because it was a repertory company which meant we used the same people over and again or we had the same base of folks to draw from that they'd be perfect for that i like that aspect there's sometimes i've seen on sets film sets where the director's you know maybe contemplating something and they've got something in mind and somebody will burst onto the scene maybe another actor and say hey here's a great idea for you. If you want to do that, hey, uh, stay in your lane. <laughs> yeah. There are some times when somebody says, hey, anybody have an idea for what we can do with this? That's when you can chip in. The director has enough on his mind. He's worried about whether you're going to get fed and paid or a place you're going to stay or whether the weather coming in is going to stop the shooting and they're going to have to bump it for three weeks. And you're thinking, hey, what can I do to make myself look pretty good here? Hey, hey, I'm pretty smart. No, take the ego out of it. Put the character into it. Work together as a team. Be a strong player, but don't step on everybody else. So, when it comes to directing, if somebody were to say, hey, do you have any ideas about this thing? I'm I'm a little stuck on it. Well, here's a limitation there. Maybe we could substitute that, change the lighting. You can make some small changes. It's not the same as directing for a play where everything is in one place, the lighting people know what they're doing, the sound people, the audio, publicity people. And there are times in small theater companies where you're doing all of those things. You're acting, directing, doing lights, sound, publicity, collecting tickets, and um, sweeping up afterward. So... People say, how do I get to be a zombie in a movie? Well, I guess that could be a starting point. Yep. Here's what I'd suggest. Go out, look and see if there's anything going on in your area. Maybe it's a film. Maybe it's a local community theater. And you say, well, I don't know anything about acting or talking. You can learn. Everybody can learn. And sometimes it's not about how much you know. It's about your look or your voice or how you sound or whether you fit the costumes they've already bought. If your three size is too big or too small, hey, sorry, we got to get somebody who's going to fit the costume. You understand? Nothing personal. we got to get somebody who's going to fit. And things like that happen, too. But get involved. Hey, can you help me on the soundboard? Uh, can you move those, those lights and uh, focus those? How do we focus a light? Oh, you do this, you do that. You need to dampen it and uh, put put some gels in there. Uh, how do you put a gel in? How do you change the color of the light? Why do Why, why would you do that? We'll work on it. You just, you just help out. From that, you get to watch everything else going on. You get to see everybody else and how they take their responsibilities. You see what the actors do to prepare for their role, whether they come on set and they don't want to talk to anybody because, hey, they have to stay in character or... They can just pop into and out of character. But if you want to get involved, you have to make the first move. You can't just sit on a park bench and hope somebody comes by and says, hey, Jim, you want to be in a George Romero movie? I've got this great role for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't you you work toward things and maybe something new comes out of it that you don't expect
0: uh, another part of, of getting involved and Brian you and I talk about this all the time Jim you've alluded to you know several different conventions we are blessed in this uh in the horror community and actually outside of the horror community there's several conventions but conventions are a great way to go and network and you know potentially get yourself involved in some of the things you're talking about with all of the projects that you have current you again you There's If you look on your – I keep referring to the Internet Movie Database, but it's such a tool to see what someone's up to. You have several projects right now that you're involved with that are either in development, uh, pre-post-production, such as yourself and the upcoming George Romero Resident Evil documentary. Uh, This is just to name a few, but I saw a film, Devil's Den. Serious profession stuck out to me because it – was the first thing that looked like it was outside of the horror genre? Is there something that drew you to that, not being involved with horror?
1: Again, the passion of the people and the fact that I knew some of the people who were going to be involved in the making of that, wanted to see what I could do to help support it. Let's see what else we have there. A host of sparrows. It's not not horror, but in that, I had a wonderful, wonderful role. I got to play a hitman who was ready to retire. <laughs> It sounds like a trope Or something But uh, it was It was just such a great role Such great fun And and I loved it Darkness waits I got to play A uh, kind of a Park ranger Type character And there's a crazy man Out in the woods With a rifle Is that horror? To some people it is And to other people It's not It's Sometimes it's how it's staged and how it's, how it's written and pulled together. Uh, remnants is horror. Uh, the Green Man, I just had a small role in that. Joe Shelby, who is one of the bikers in Dawn of the Dead. He was in Pittsburgh. He said, "Hey, could you help me out with this movie?" He said, "I've got a role for you if you'd like, just to be a, a diner at uh, in uh, this restaurant scene that we're shooting." I said, hey, I'll go out. You know, I had Kyra Sean, Tommy Lafitte, and some other folks who were involved in Romero Films. And you know, sometimes when people ask you, it's because they trust what you can do or they know you. But it's it's a compliment. If somebody asks me to do something and I feel it's something I can do and do well, I'll I'll say yes. But I have to also agree that it's something I want to be associated with. I've had some offers to do some various types of films in which... uh hey, and then we're going to do this thing and cut the top of your head off. And I said, no, thank you. I think that's been done. It's been done very well. Tom Savini, George Romero did it. And that's my brand, if you would. I don't want to cheapen that because to me, it's a respect for what was done. And I don't want that just to be, hey, I threw it on Jim Cutter there and he did that. That to me is not important. The fact that to me, it's just personal respect for the role that I was given and the blessing that I had to work with George Barrow and Tom Savini in Dawn of the Dead. If anybody has any other roles for me, uh, just don't ask to take the top of my head off, please. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and I think actually you, you just and everything you just said adds another level or layer to becoming involved. And that is adaptability, you know, not sticking with one genre or sticking with one type of role and being, you know, open and available for other projects. I think it's fantastic. But there's a specific project coming up that I got to mention. I, you actually mentioned recently about a shoot coming up soon, and, and maybe this isn't it. I've seen a lot of buzz around Slasher Nurse, and I just had to bring it up because it's got a, a loaded cast in our genre with Felissa Rose, Beverly Randolph, Brian Bremer, and co host Brian's favorite, Darcy the Mail Girl.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Dave Kerr asked, asked me uh, a couple of years back to do a role in Return of the Slasher Nurse. So I did that and I had worked with Dave before when we were at Creature Feature Weekend in Gettysburg Dave was there he said would you be interested we're going to do a remake of Slasher Nurse because he'd already made Slasher Nurse because I was in return of the Slasher Nurse well this is going backwards so hey tell me all about it but I want to see the whole script very good about that working with wonderful wonderful people and I, I don't want to name, you know start naming all the names but uh, Jordan Miller Sound Cinematography and you know Michael McLenn, and all the all the other folks I got to work with on that, and Dave Kerr, very considerate, and I think I'd almost use the word meticulous at this stage in terms of directing. I think he's going to do a great job. Everything I've seen from it looks really good, and it's an independent film. So some people try to raise a thousand dollars to make a film. Some make five. Some might make ten. He had set his goal, and I think right now he's at like fifty-eight thousand dollars. Just exceeded. What does that mean when you get more money in? Well, that means you can pay the people who are working in it. You can help offset the cost of the locations, bring in food for people, put them up if need be, transportation. What about makeup? That stuff doesn't come free. Maybe you need special props or clothing. All of those things have costs. What if you have to rent equipment? So the bigger budget you have to work with, that means you can bring in better quality sound, lighting, camera quality and uh, you know acting Sets it just means so much more when you can do that. So I'm very, I'm very happy for Dave uh, that he can do that and work with it. He's worked with other films. He's got a couple other in the hopper. I had a fun role in it. I can't tell you too much about it, but I got to play kind of a cranky character, and I'd, I'd had hip surgery and I was using a cane anyway. So you get to see me hobbling around on a cane, uh, yelling cranky kinds of things. <laughs>
0: To the listeners who can't see the sheer joy in Jim's face right now, it tells us that even though he he just told us what he needed to tell us while not being able to tell us what he wanted to tell us, it looks like it's going to be fun. So you mentioned meeting uh, that filmmaker at Creature Feature Weekend, and I kind of just touched on it, but do you feel that your presence at various conventions can be attributed in part to you continuing to land all these roles? I mean, I know that you're a great marketer of, your, of yourself, and like you say, your brand, but do you think conventions play a part?
1: Oh, well, yes, thank you. Uh, it's actually a con- combination of things because one feeds off the other. You had mentioned some people go to conventions to find characters. I was doing Dracula in theater, and afterward, we do a signing, and I did do signings of um, my Dawn of the Dead photos to raise money for the theater. Well, there was a person, uh, Travis McLaughlin, who said, hey, I'm the projectionist at the Leitersburg 8 Cinema. How about if we set up a showing of the original Dawn of the Dead and the remake and have you out in the lobby, and you can do autographs and talk to fans between the shows? I said, that sounds like fun. So, from one thing, that led to a very small appearance. During that appearance, I was approached by someone who said, I have a role for you if you would be interested. And it turned out to be Deadlands 2, Trapped. It was one of the uh, first next major roles that I had with, I would say, more lines, but more, more character development and People went to see it and said, I didn't realize you were such a nasty guy. I have to tell you a quick little story. My younger, (laughs) I'll try to be quick. My younger daughter, Angelica, was dating this man, Brandon, and they later married, and they were going to meet us. We wanted, it was kind of like a meet to parents, and I said, well, look, we're gonna be in the DC area for the premiere of Deadlands 2. See, that we'll meet you up at the movie, and then we'll maybe go out to dinner or something. So they went to the movies, we went to the movies, came out of the movies. And he just kind of leaned back and looked at me. My son-in-law now is an ex-Marine. You wouldn't want to mess with him. And he had just come back from Iraq not too too long before that. And he's just kind of leaning back looking at me because he's not real sure. And later he said, you know, seeing you on the movie screen was my first real opportunity to meet Angie's dad. And you ordered this hit on this guy. (laughs) And you were as cold as ice. And I thought, what am I getting into? <laughs> so he's been a great son in law. brings a great job.
0: That's hilarious. That's I can't even follow up. That's such a great story. Now I need to land myself in like a, a chainsaw maniac type role. So hopefully my daughters, whom they're their first boyfriend or whatever, sees me and just goes, Uh oh. It helps that's great. Clint, do it, do it. We talked about conventions and networking and and indie films and all how that all plays together. I just I have to mention real quick. Uh, our listeners have heard this story before, but one of the reasons that Brian and I are on this podcast was because we both backed uh, a fan film, Valentine Bluffs, a fan film, and then I traveled for the first time to the Quad Cities, about six hours away from my house, not knowing a soul, and typed in that group page. Hey, does anybody here? Is anybody from this film going to be here? Brian spoke up and a couple other people, and one thing led to another, and now we're doing this podcast. So we have that community that you were uh, talking about earlier. Thanks for that. One of the reasons I bring that up too is I just had to make mention that you had brought up Host of Sparrows and uh, Mike Sutton acted on that with you. And Mike also
1: acted
0: acted in the Valentine Bliss fan film that kind of brought this podcast and and other great things from it together. So it's, I love when there's connections and it's it's such a uh, for as big as a world as it is it's a relatively small world. But so I got to switch gears completely from that because I got to ask you, it's a serious question, serious question time. I'm curious. So your, your body of work has existed on stage in indie cinema, but right now, currently from the front line, what... Like ramifications do you currently see in regards to effects from the the strikes that are going on, the SAG after a strike and the WGA? Have you seen a lot?
1: I have not because, again, the films that I've been involved with have been independent and they were pretty much wrapping up as as the strike was happening. Without those sacrifices that um, the scriptwriters, the actors, and everyone else involved with are are having to make, and that's what a strike is. Uh, You're making sacrifices they're going to suffer. And yet, hopefully, something good will come out of it. I'm going to refer to a movie that a lot of people are not familiar with, and that is The Congress with Robin Wright. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Robin Wright, of course, was in um, Princess Bride, House of Cards...
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with Robin, but not the Congress, no.
1: The storyline is that she is called in by her agent to the studio, and they said, we would like to digitize you. And this movie was like 2013, so we're talking like 10 years ago. We would like to digitize you, because we notice you're starting to get some, like a little crow's feet and some wrinkles. You did an outstanding job in your earlier films, but wouldn't it be wonderful if you could preserve this beautiful look you have now, and we could make films with that digital image of you will just give you a payout but you won't be able to work in other films but you'll get this payout and your glory and your image will go on forever and i thought that is just so crazy at the time but the film gets into a lot of implications about what that really means what it means to the studio they buy out all this they take your heart out of your body as it is now And they market it and make their money off of it. And you are left, I wouldn't say an empty shell, but... Any actor has not ended up where they are now by starting where they are now. That means you have had a growth curve or a bell curve of some type, a growth curve that you learned how to do this, you learned how to do that, you picked up nuances there, you learned not to move your muscles too much when you're on film because it's distracting and it gives you strength when you're still. You've gone through all of those stages and there are more stages to go through. So when somebody says, I'm going to pick this spot right now and digitize you. What does that mean? All the other maturity in those characters... And if you look at some of the, you know, the major horror characters like uh, Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, these were not teenagers who were, you know, sculpted and then lived forever as teenagers. These are people who had developed their craft over a period of time. And they continue to do it. And they continue to act. Our lives, I think, are not one digital snapshot of ourselves. Does it have some uses? Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. How did they make Harrison Ford look so young at the beginning? Okay, let's have a little movie movie magic to do that movie to do that. But let's not take that image of Harrison Ford and make other movies of him with that. That's that's kind of my perspective on it.
0: No, I agree. That's actually kind of chilling. I'm going to have to check that movie out that 10 years ago, and now we're here we are dealing with the reality of it uh, to make a kind of light of it to a degree, I guess. It's almost like uh, in 2013, that movie was like what, what Star Trek was, and now all this stuff that was introduced in Star Trek is reality.
1: Definitely way ahead of its time, and uh, you know, as the characters use avatars, then the avatars all get together well, that's a Congress. So, no, thus, the Congress. Oh. Not the U.S. Congress. Don't make a mistake. That's that's another horror story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, from serious question back to fun time stuff, besides com, H E L I zombie.com, Jim, where can people keep up with you and, and what you have going on?
1: Well, on my Facebook page, it's just Jim Crutt, J I M K R U T. And uh, I'm on there from time to time, saying hello and showing pictures of my beautiful tomatoes, <laughs> carrots, beets, blueberries, and whatever else happens to be growing successfully. You never show the failures. I used to do a lot of marketing, you know, you never show your failures.
0: Well, I tell you, and it was actually pretty humbling because, again, if anybody does go to Jim's Facebook page and see, uh, you know, I, I keep talking about his garden because I do not have a green thumb. My father did, um, but I still have a garden and I try. And so your stuff is inspirational. And then I showed uh, Jim a picture of my enclosed garden that I constructed, which I think the construction looks nice, but whatever I produce inside it is still lacking. And he's like, Oh, no, that's great. And I thought, I don't even care if he's just being nice to me. It was such a compliment that the green thumb giant here said, Your garden
1: looks cool. The green thumb giant. <laughs> no, you know, truthfully, if you can bite a, a little bit of that passion in terms of gardening, it doesn't matter what you do. The fact that you're doing it is it. It's not, I bet the big tomato or pumpkin or whatever. The fact that you're doing it and it's you, it's it's a personal connection with the earth, all those good energies. And yes, you're growing and you're, you're helping to recreate that miracle of growth. And you get a little sweat and you get tired and things go wrong. You learn about insects, the kind that are eating your fruit. And you learn about diseases, the kind that are turning all the green leaves, brown and yellow. And you learn about all sorts of stuff. The seasons, it's just like step into this little area and you're learning about the world. And and that's personally to me. And, and I mean that in all humility, it, it helps me con. it helps me stay connected.
0: Speaking of continuing to do stuff um, again, people can keep up with what's going on with you on your Facebook page and hellozombie.com. Can you uh, tell us real quick what is next for you as far as conventions, film projects? Is there anything you want to uh, plug or tell us what you got going on?
1: excuse me yes uh this weekend uh saturday and sunday in harrisburg pennsylvania at the farm show complex is the harrisburg comic and pop con and i will be there both days doing autographs and greeting fans and just enjoying myself as well because i love to get together at conventions i always meet so many people when i met the people behind texas chainsaw massacre i thought these guys got to be creepy No, I love them I just love them so, <laughs> You get to meet the people behind the characters sometimes And uh, you can, you know, tell them and appreciate that And then again, first weekend of November will be the uh, Weekend of the Dead in Manchester in the UK um, I believe there's another one coming up in September I have to take a look at the calendar and check that one out Usually I'll do some promotion on my Facebook page If the, You know, it's more current with the dates
0: there are so many shows anymore and they're all wonderful but we talk about that too they just kind of blend together and if someone asked me on the spot what are you doing next I'm like oh uh, I have a list right here ahead of me so I when we do this show I can look and go okay here's the date so yeah I I get it Jim we want to thank you for being on the show you're truly a genuinely a wonderful human being and I'm not saying that because you're already on the show so don't have to talk you into it and fluff your ego you are you're great to be around it's easy to see that you care about people and the fans in general your wife and yourself are a pleasure to be around. So thank you very much.
1: Th- thank you, Clint. Thanks very much for having me. And Brian, it's, I'm glad we have a shared love for some of the same uh, critters in the, in the realm of horror. You know, it's, it's truly nice to uh, be able to chat about some of the things that are not necessarily all film but you know the world of film in a sense the larger world and the the people that are involved with it and what they all bring to it so thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it and uh see you in the movies
0: absolutely and you know i also know another group of genuinely wonderful people although we're not quite sure if they're all actually people and that is our podcast network the pfpn so let's hear from them
2: So now that we've heard from our podcast network, it's time for some horror history. A date which will live in infamy. So this episode covers September 3rd through the 16th. God, it's already September. Where'd this year go? Lord. It's history. Yeah. So the first week in September, there was not much going on that interested me. So I jumped to the second week, starting with September 11th. In 1987, we had Hellraiser was released and The Curse. I'm not a big Hellraiser, the original fan, are you?
0: I yeah I like the first three. Um, once you got into Bloodlines, it was kind of weird. There's something coming out. Um, not trying to take us off track, but they're re-releasing Bloodlines with some unseen footage or something. I don't know. I kind of browsed an article about it, but yeah, I I like I like the Hellraiser
2: series. I I'm not a fan of the first one, surprise, but I like the second and third one. <laughs> <laughs> I, the first one was just kind of slow. I mean, I know it's building a a story in a universe. You know, it just wasn't for me.
0: A lot of people didn't like the third one because it kind of got into that, like, Freddy Krueger, wisecrack kind of pop culture stuff. But, I mean, that scene in the nightclub where he, you know, creates, like, the CD Man and the bartender Cenobite, come on, that's great stuff,
2: people, come on. <laughs> and then uh, 1997 Cube was released, It's so the Canadian Cube. In 1963, Virginia Madsen appeared in Candyman. The number 23 in Zombie High was born. She's really attractive. You know, I was looking through this and I was like, I don't remember her being that attractive in Candyman. And maybe that was her character. You know, she wasn't supposed to be, you know, she was supposed to be like a professor. Or a, I think she was a,
0: a grad student or she was in like a journalism class. Yeah, but no, guy. I've always thought Virginia Madden's been been attractive. Yeah.
2: September 12th. In 1958, we got the original Blob. In 1980, we got Prom Night and Shockwaves, which was filmed in 1977, but it came out in the United States in the 80s. It took a while. And in 2003, we got Cabin Fever. I know most people talk about the second Prom Night. More than the original, I feel like. Hmm, I
0: don't know. The original, of course, had Jimmy Lee Curtis. And the second one was the second one was a Hello, Mary Lou prom night, too. And I just remember that. I remember that being a USA up all night movie.
2: Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why more people know it, because it was on USA up all night all the time. Yes.
0: The original was like that early 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 80s slasher kind of feel. And then. um and by the time he got to part two, that's why you think more people talk about it because it says part two. But that's when it got into that 80s kind of schlock.
2: And then on September 16th in 1958, Jennifer Tilly, who played Tiffany in The Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky, was born nineteen eighty seven. Street Trash was released. I love that movie. That's such a fun movie. I'm interested to see, um, you know, the remake. So I think we talked about that last time that, you know, they're doing the remake with the guy that did Fried Berry.
0: I wonder if there's going to be a huge influx of Viper. That was the alcohol they drank of Viper, you know, merchandise and memorabilia. Uh, I tell you what, the only thing you discussed, I hope we never hear or see from ever again. Very few things do I put my foot down and go, fuck this. I hate Cabin Fever. I hate Cabin Fever. I hate the little ninja kid at the end. I hate everything about that movie.
2: I don't know that I've ever seen the original. It's like one of those um, holes I need to fill or maybe I don't need to fill. I did see like Cabin Fever, Patient Zero or something like that. Uh,
0: The only hole you need to fill with that is the six
2: foot hole you dug in the ground to bury that son of a bitch and cover it up. I was trying to watch something last night. I was like, I had never seen that. I need to watch it. And, of course, it was, you can't stream this. You had to buy it. I was like, no, nah, I'll go to something else. What are you going to do? Now watch that movie.
0: I shouldn't say anything else. I'm creating the Bar- the Barbara Streisand effect. Where I'm like, that movie sucks. Don't go watch it. So everybody's going to go watch it. We need to watch Cabin Fever. All of a sudden, Eli Roth gets enough money to make a sequel. Never mind. Hold on. Let me change my stance. It was the best movie ever. <laughs> I love it. And I'd love to see it back-to-back with um, with Talk To Me in the theater. That'd be great.
2: Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> you could write a script. I mean, I know a guy that could, you know, help you, like, mad-lib a script. You'd have a whole story. I'm working
0: on something else. We'll see. Maybe maybe down the road.
2: So, we got going on anything?
0: What is going on? <laughs>
2: I was trying to think. I got nothing. I'm just, you know, continuing to push through the Halloweenapalooza movies. So they're on their final couple weeks to get that sealed up. And I'm all caught up on, on judging. So that makes me happy. It's about to be hotter than Hades around here. So maybe I can stay inside and watch the movies. Get caught up on a couple things. Still working on this event at the Orpheum. I mean, we got the date set. By the time this episode comes out, you should see the poster work from inkmares.com. You should see the dates, all the other movies that the Orpheum showing in October should be released, possibly already have a bonus episode or a bonus episodes coming soon talking about the event at the Orpheum. Got a paint night set up and I even talked to the lady at the paint place into throwing some blood on the painting dripping down from the top of the orpheum the painting is the orpheum with some pumpkins in front which i asked to be added and then kind of like it's almost like spirits coming out of the top into the moon forming a face and then i said could you throw some like red in there and she's like blood and i was (laughs) yeah like blood and she's like well yeah you can do that but i won't put it in for like my normal clientele And I was like, okay, but then she didn't. She's like, I actually kind of like it, you know, blood dripping down from the, the top. So, yeah, you should have all the information, hopefully, by the time this episode comes out for the Orpheum
0: instead of the house that bled to death like the last episode that was what you covered from Hammer House of Horror it's it's the theater that bled to death I I love that image you shared that image with me if anybody around there is going to be going to that paint night thing uh, I, I think you should it looked like a lot of fun I didn't when I first looked at it before I read what you had typed you know the description I thought it was a movie poster for like some upcoming indie indie flick it looks really cool really cool it'd be a lot of fun for whoever goes to do that you know what's funny is you always start out you're like let's see i don't really have anything going on this 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 this. you're so modest about it it's like yeah you're actually pretty involved man you're shaking a move and you've always got something going on so
2: i'm tired yeah <laughs> we had that discussion too yeah clint and i have had that discussion a lot if you're not tired maybe you're not working hard enough i don't know maybe i should take a nap and see if it's like changes my outlook on things i'm like oh i could have got that done
0: yeah, I'm going to go do that right now. Wait, I can't. I got to tell you what I got going on just in case anybody's interested. If you're not, that's it's okay. My feelings aren't hurt. So this will be cryptic, but back to you said something about script, you know, screenwriting, screenplays. If anybody listening knows how to get a hold of director Gary P. Cohen, who directed video violence one and two, let me know. Shoot a message to I like a spooky pot at gmail.com. Hit me up at corpse Facebook. Uh, dot com slash corpse barn and just let me know i'm interested to find out all right what else do i got going on uh let's see saturday september 16th is the next show for ink it is a one-day show at the fowlerville fairgrounds in fowlerville michigan hearse fest 2023 this show has been long running it outgrew It's venue in Hell, Michigan, which isn't too far from Fowlerville um, and has been at Fowlerville for I think this is the third year now for a few years. Uh, I was finally able to get in and been there last year. Had a blast. Did really well. Can't wait to go back. Ted from Ted's Marvelous Custom Gumball Emporium to go along. So him and I will be side by side selling stuff like used car salesmen. And then shortly after that is Midwest Monster Fest, which we'll I think we'll get into some more stuff about that the next episode. So yeah, I'm getting ready to kind of... Wind down and wrap up the last half of 2023 as far as inkmares.com with a bang with some really good shows. Uh, working on a side project, I've always got a bunch of weird little stuff going on that I can't really tell anybody about. I could, but then I'd look like an idiot if it doesn't happen. And I throw myself out there and I dabble and I, I shoot for the stars and a lot of stuff where a lot of stuff does just you know fall apart and it doesn't come to be. But you know, hey, at least I tried so. Hopefully there's some cool stuff to talk about. If anybody knows
2: how to get a hold of Gary Cohen, let me know. I need to talk to him. I hear he likes trains. Choo choo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that you c- followed as a. Is it as a band he's in?
0: Yeah. So. um, it's like this kind of old timey like jug music stuff. I seriously wasn't trying to stalk the guy. <laughs> now people are listening. are like, what the hell is going on? I noticed that he's into to model trains and he's into this old timey music and he's got this band and they go to like fairs and stuff and, and perform immediately reminded me of my old man. My dad was trains were his life. Even when he didn't work for the railroad, him and I had a, a huge model train set and to my dad, his model train set was kind of like ink mirrors to me he didn't look to really make money off it but that was his you know his big project and um although i enjoyed working on it with him when i was a kid it was really more his thing but i just i have fun in fact the train set's still set up in the basement of, of the house where i grew up you know he's he's long gone but the train set's still there he liked old school old timey music and stuff like that so that's why I followed the page, and then I was like, "Oh wait, I can probably get a hold of Gary through here." And then I was like, "Well, it's going to look like I'm, you know, I, it was very authentic." My reasoning for following his his band. So,
2: well, then you you looked at it, and I was like, "What's?" And I started looking at it. I'm like, "Oh, maybe I'll follow this." And I was like, "What am I doing?" It's <laughs>
0: like we're old. We are old, man. That's all right. The gray in my beard gives me away, but the twinkle in my eye confuses people.
2: We're wise. Okay,
0: we're old. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. that was like the insert the crickets audio part right
2: there. The well, now that you've listened to horror news and why we're poor and heard from our podcast network, we had an amazing interview with the helicopter zombie Jim Crutt. Don't forget check out – oh, God, we did horror history. We did what we're up to. We do so much, I forget how to close out the damn show because I'm like, what do I got to do today? Don't forget check out the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast. YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Threads, Instagram, Facebook, somewhere I forgot. Go to Hearst fest buy some cool ink Marist stuff. Come to the Orpheum and watch a movie in October. Hell, what else do we got going on? Anything else?
0: Go to the paint party and paint blood-splattered theaters.
2: I sold out the private paint party in like an hour. We're doing a private one with people from my work. I sold it out in like an hour. I was like, oh, maybe we'll have to do another one.
0: I think it would be funny if kind of like in the last episode, your your episode, The House That Bled to Death, if like while they're painting, like when they get done, all of a sudden everybody gets splattered with blood like a Gallagher concert. That would be
2: awesome. Yeah, one of the pipes like start to break and everybody just stands there and watches it.
0: I'll bring down my blood splatter cannon. Oh, it's <laughs> tons of fun.
2: <laughs> what do you do with a blood splatter cannon?
0: Splatter things with blood. Didn't you ever see uh, a Christmas Cletus video, Santa, Santa Cletus? Yeah. I would take it in my house and splatter Christmas trees with it.
2: I bet that was a bitch to clean up. It's still there. I tried. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I just put the tree in front of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was a blast. Get it, but I'm bumped. Well, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, a couple things he missed. He's right.
0: There's all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, so the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast, we put out 16 different original episodes. Some are shorts like Spill the Guts. Check that out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Two twice a month are shorts, and that is uh, the Appendages app talking about streaming movies on, or movies streaming on Crackle and Redbox, which you're going to want to check into this uh, this beginning in uh, September, because Brian's taking over the helms on that, and I am curious to hear what it's going to sound like, so... As always, check in with the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast everywhere to see what the hell it is we got coming at you.
2: Did you say goodbye?
0: Oh, bye, everybody. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? Show some fucking respect for the dead, will you?